We'll grab your Bibles, please, and turn to the Old Testament book of Amos. And as you're turning there, I just want to clarify something very quickly that I said last Sunday. Nobody mentioned anything, but it was kind of a, a burr in my saddle all week. I just want to make sure that I didn't miscommunicate what I was thinking, uh, which does happen sometimes. I mentioned to you the importance of the book of Genesis, and the reason it's important is because God established his laws there. And it didn't even occur to me that some people might be thinking I was referring to the Ten Commandments. I wasn't referring to those laws. The Ten Commandments don't come until uh, Exodus chapter 20, much later on. I was referring to, uh, I don't know how to put it properly, but the, the laws of the universe. In other words, in Genesis, God laid down the laws of the universe, letting us know that he is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is Lord and master over everything, including us. And what that means for our lives is because of that, you and I are not free to live however we want to live. We're not free to make any moral choices we want. Every person, saved and unsaved, will give an account to God. Why? I heard one person say, who does God think he is? You know where that problem comes from? If they would just go to Genesis and read Genesis, that question would be answered. In the first two chapters, God is creator and Lord of all including us. And so that lays the law out for all of life, everything. So that's what I was referring to. Probably nobody but me thought about that, but I just wanted to <clears throat> make sure that we were clear on that. Well, as you're turning to Amos, I am reminded of uh, a couple who had been married for 60 years. They were at their 60th anniversary celebration, and a young newly married man came up to the husband and he said, you know, I've known you for a long time and I've admired your marriage. You have the most peaceful marriage I think I've ever seen. And he said, you know, I'm new at this. What's your secret? The man said, well, I'll tell you, son. Um, he said, 60 years ago, when we got married, we went to the Grand Canyon for our honeymoon. And while we were there, we took the, the mule ride that you can take down into the canyon. And on the way down, um, my wife's mule stumbled and nearly fell. And she got off the mule and she walked around to the front of the mule and looked in his eyes. And she said, that's one. <laughs> and she got back on the mule and started walking down again. The mule stumbled again. She got off and went around and looked at the mule and said, that's two. A few minutes later, the mule stumbled a third time, and she got off and took out a pistol and shot the mule. He, he said, I didn't even know she carried a gun. <laughs> and he said, I, I couldn't believe it. I jumped off my mule. I ran over to her. I said, what, what is your problem? What are you doing? I can't believe you killed an innocent animal. What's wrong with you? And he said, she looked at me and said, that's one. <laughs> And he said, you know, the weirdest thing, we've had the happiest marriage ever since. 
There's something about having a threat hanging over your head that causes you to live differently. And today we're going to meet an entire nation who had a threat over their head, put on them by God. And we're going to see, um, whew, I'm very scared to say this, but over the next three weeks, we're going to see how they respond to this. And man, there's a lot of lessons we can learn from the book of Amos. There is a great danger in reading these Old Testament prophets and seeing nothing but gloom and doom and judgment. But these books are more relevant to your life and mind than the daily newspaper is. Make no mistake. People have not changed in 2,700 years since Amos was around. And so there's a lot that we can learn from this. I just want to pick up, just hit the ground running here with Amos. In Amos chapter 1, verse 1, here's how it opens. The words of Amos who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, Phil, you're right. This is riveting stuff. <laughs> but we, we, must, uh, we must take a minute to allow the writer to set the context for us. It's important to know what's going on in that time so that it will make sense to the rest of these events. The Old Testament prophets often included details like this to let the readers know what time in history they were writing this, what time in history these events occurred. So Amos mentions Uzziah, king of Judah. Now remember from our studies way back, we're now in the divided kingdom era. David was king. He ruled. His son Solomon ruled. He started out well. He ended up really bad. And because of him, because of the slave labor that he put on the nation and, and other things, the nation split in two. These are God's people. They were never meant to split, but they split in two. We had Judah down south, whose capital was Jerusalem. We had Israel up north above that whose capital was Samaria. So now these are two opposing groups. God's people have split into two denominations. We don't know anything about that, do we? Thank goodness we're past that. So they've split now, north and south, Israel and Judah. And so Amos is courteously giving us a reference point in history for us, almost 3,000 years later, to know when he lived. He says Uzziah, king of Judah, was around, and Jeroboam, king of Israel. Um, a number of the Old Testament prophets mention King Uzziah as a kind of a marker in history. Ezra mentions him. Hosea uh, mentions him. Um, Zechariah. Actually, Zechariah also mentions this earthquake. Um, he, he talks about how you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king. Probably the most well-known mention of Uzziah is in the book of Isaiah. We remember, I think, that very prominent verse where Isaiah said, in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Remember that? Seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. So we know by this then that Ezra lived around that same time, Isaiah lived around that same time, and we see now that Amos did as well. And so by studying all the books in the Bible and by studying other historical writings, we can get some pretty good dates on when these things happened. Now, uh, Amos also mentions this one other thing in this opening verse that means nothing to us, but it was such a well-known event, he didn't even have to take time to describe it. He just said, these things took place two years before the earthquake. Earthquakes are not uncommon in that area, but this was the earthquake. That would be like me saying to you, the day after 9-11, I did this. And anybody who's in my age bracket would immediately know what period of time I'm talking about. So that's what Amos is doing here. Now, I love the fact that Amos appears um, very humbly in the pages of Scripture. He comes onto the scene with no fanfare, no big announcements, no one walking before him with trumpets and placards and making announcements that he has arrived. He comes quietly at first onto the scene, and what we discover right up front uh, is that Amos isn't even a prophet. We learn two things about him. He was a shepherd from the town of Tekoa, and um, Tekoa was a little town just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. It was such a small, rinky-dink place that it would, it would never have even made it on Travelocity's listings. It was kind of out of the way, out of the picture. And from reading this book, we're also going to discover that Amos was sent from Judah in the south. And all this is important to what we're going to see today in the next few weeks. Amos was sent from Judah in the south to Israel in the north to make this prophecy. Now, they hated each other, kind of like the north and south here in our history. And so we have to picture this, you know, into this big northern city walks this unknown farmer from the south, and he begins proclaiming this prophecy. And I can just imagine the religious big shots coming up to him. In fact, we see a confrontation like this uh, and saying, "Uh, excuse me, which prophet are you again? I don't recognize you. And Amos says, oh, I'm, I'm not a prophet at all. Um, I'm, just a, I'm just a farmer from down south. You can imagine the reception he received. This was in a day that was maybe worse than ours when it came to um, recognizing a person's religious pedigree. Amos was nobody. And he shows up on the scene now claiming to proclaim the words of God to these people. He did not get a good reception. In fact, what I mentioned, I'll show you quickly. Later in the book, there's a a wicked priest named Amaziah. Not the same as King Amaziah, but uh, this priest confronts Amos and he, he tells him to take a hike. He says, Get out of here. Go back to where you came from. We don't want to hear any more of your prophecies. And Amaziah, in that, you know, that blistering speech he gave him, he calls him a seer, S-E-E-R. It's another word for prophet. It literally means a seer, one who sees. 
But Amos corrects him. If we jump forward to chapter 7, verse 14, says, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder or a, a, a herder, herdsman, and a tender of sycamore fruit or sycamore figs, it can be translated. I mean, this, this big, important priest is saying to Amos, who do you think you are, son? Who do you think you are coming up here pronouncing judgment on us? You're nothing but a smelly shepherd and a fig farmer. And you see, I think it's important to notice that Amos didn't have the fancy credentials to impress people, but he had the most important thing of all. He had the call of God on his life. We know this by the next verse, chapter 7, verse 15. He said, But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. And as we go through this book, it's going to be incredibly important that we see that while Amos may not have had the approval of men, he had the power of God on his life. And we should all take great encouragement from that. God can use us no matter who we are. Most people that I know, including myself, we all tend to look at ourselves like, man, who am I? I'm nobody. God can use that person because, wow, look how they can sing. God can use that person because, wow, look at all the books they've written. Yeah, it's a dangerous thing. So let's not forget as we come to this, Amos is not some big shot prophet. He doesn't make the top five list of prophets in Christianity magazine every year. He's nobody. And he humbly says, man, I'm just a fig farmer, but God called me to come and do this. All right, so let's jump back now to chapter 1, verse 2. And as Amos now appears humbly and quietly on the scene, he wastes no time opening his mouth and getting right into this prophecy, and it is going to sting. Verse 2, and he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel, that's Mount Carmel, withers. Amos pictures God as a lion on the prowl. Now, I identify with this because I spent so many years in South Africa and I saw plenty of lions out in their natural habitat. I don't know if you've ever seen a lion in its natural habitat. I don't mean an old toothless lion in the zoo, but a strong, young, powerful male lion strutting through the grass, mane blowing in the wind, music playing in the background, <laughs> muscles rippling. I mean, you just see this creature, and there's no mistake, this is the king of the jungle. There's no mistake. And then you hear him roar. I don't know if you've ever heard a lion in his natural habitat roar, but it is a fearsome, intimidating sound. I mean, it literally rattles your bones. You can feel it in your bones. There's this power and this base to it that is, uh, it just stops you in your tracks. 
And every time I've been in a situation like that and heard a lion roar, everybody in the group, their eyes go, bing, and they look at each other like, whoa, did you hear that? Yes, I heard that. I'm still quivering from it. I heard it. And so Amos paints this picture of the Lord as a lion roaring out this judgment against the nations. Later in the book, Amos asked the rhetorical question, a lion has roared, who will not fear? And everybody's like, yeah, no, we, we all fear. The thing to know is God's people had been rebelling for years and years and years. This goes all the way back to what I mentioned earlier after Solomon. He's the one who brought in all those wives with all their foreign gods, and they got set up in the nation And when he died, the nation split with Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and they set up idol worship and golden calves and all this mess. It's been going on for a very long time. And all that while, God has been issuing these tender calls to them. Please come back to me. Please turn your hearts back to me. And the people were partying so hard, they didn't even hear what God was saying. And so now the time has come where the clock went ding, and the timer was up, and God said, no more tender calls. Now you want to know what you're going to hear? You're going to hear the lion roar. I've had it with you. And they will not be able to ignore him this time. Well, as God begins pronouncing this judgment on his people through Amos, He uses a a brilliant series of steps to do so. He names, first of all, we'll look at these verses, he names seven of Israel's neighboring nations one by one, and he lists the sins that they've committed. And on the map, when you look at these nations, you can actually see what God is doing through Amos. He begins at the furthest out nations from Israel. If Israel is the center of the bullseye, you see it there, he begins with Damascus and Gaza, and he begins naming all of these nations surrounding Israel, and with each one he names, the spiral is tightening more and more, and he's zooming in closer and closer to the bullseye until he finally names Israel right in the center of the target. And he begins each of these statements. I've marked them in in my Bible, so they stand out very clearly. He begins each of these statements to each of these nations with the phrase, thus says the Lord, to make it absolutely clear that, hey, I'm just a fig farmer. This isn't coming from me. This is coming from the creator of the heavens and the earth. So you might want to pay attention. And he also uses a unique, um, I guess you'd call it a literary device. In each of these, he uses a, a statement that would have been common to them, but not so common to us. He says, for three transgressions and for four. And, and what he's saying in there is, God is saying, for three transgressions and for four, I will not forget your, your sins, the transgressions you've committed. God is, is saying, Listen, you've sinned and you've sinned and you've sinned. But now this time, in other words, you've done it three times, even though it's been much more than that. You've sinned three times and I've been patient. But now the fourth time, it's over. 
So that's kind of the setup of what we're about to see. Now we'll just look at each of these briefly for time's sake. Verse 3, the first nation he names is Damascus. And he says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. And God goes on in the next couple of verses and he names their sins and the coming consequences. The second one is Gaza in verse six, verses six through eight. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. The third one is Tyre, verses 9 and 10. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Does that sound familiar from last week? Edom, the brothers, Jacob and Esau. Number four is Edom itself. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he pursued his brother. Listen, here's the story we looked at last week. Because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. Number five is Ammon. Verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the people of Ammon and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead. And it just goes on to describe these horrific things that they did. Number six is Moab in chapter two, verses one through three. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Number seven is Judah, chapter two, verses four and five. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their lies led them astray, lies which their fathers followed. And so we pause here for a second and we see what, what God is doing through this prophecy of Amos is he is now pinpointed seven nations all around Israel and said that he's going to judge them for their sins. But Israel hasn't been named yet. And I have to imagine that the people of Israel were standing there hearing this prophecy. And with each of these pagan nations that Amos called off one by one, I would imagine that these arrogant people of Israel were standing there going, yep, that's right, they had it coming. You preach it, brother. Go get them, God. They had no idea that they were the bullseye of the target. And I feel like it's a little bit like the church acts today. I would think if we're honest, if we heard that God was going to bring judgment upon a nation now, right now in our time, we would reason with ourselves and say, oh, I bet it's going to be Iraq. I mean, oh, those people, 
They've caused lots of problems. Or I bet maybe Rwanda, because think of the horrible genocide that went on a few years ago. Or what about Northern Ireland and all the indiscriminate bombing that takes place there and all the innocent people being killed? We could probably name a list of nations that we thought would be deserving recipients of God's judgment. I doubt we would ever name Greenville. I doubt we would ever name LifePoint Church. Oh, we'd be convinced the lion would roar in those wicked nations. And God certainly will judge all the nations of the earth. He, he will judge all the wrong that's been done in all the places of the earth. But I think what the modern church today fails to see is exactly what Israel failed to see. And that is that the bullseye of God's judgment was pointed straight at them. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. Here the tables turn suddenly. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. And it goes on and on. And, and while the other nations got two or three verses of God's coming judgment, Israel gets the rest of the book of Amos. Why is that? I'll tell you why it is, because God has invested and entrusted so much into these people of Israel. He's blessed them. He's provided for them. He's protected them. He's led them and their forefathers for generations. God has been so abundantly good to these specific people. And he reminds them of this in starting in verse 9 of chapter 2. Look at this quickly. This is God speaking. I've circled all the words I in here. Yet it was I, God says, who destroyed the Amorite before them. That was their enemy whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. It was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O children of Israel, says the Lord? They had been given so many blessings. And here's a danger. You and I can read about the Israelites and all the blessings they received. But I would submit to you, we've received just as many blessings. We are just as blessed. This is why God warned them throughout the Old Testament and why he warns us throughout the New Testament, not to forget all that he has done, not to let his blessings slip from our mind. Because bad things happen when we do that. But this was about, God's righteous judgment here was about far more than just the material blessings. More importantly, God had entrusted his law to these people, his instructions to them. He had entrusted that to this specific group of people in Israel. And they knew better than the way they were living. They knew better. 
They had God's law. And although we'll see in the coming weeks, they were, they were keeping God's law ritualistically. Maybe it'd be better to say they, they were keeping God's law religiously. And yet they were completely disregarding God's law morally in their daily lives. But don't we see the same thing today? I read surveys and things quite often to try to keep up with the pulse and the heartbeat of our country and the world. I'm always amazed to see the millions and millions of people in America who attend church every Sunday, who call themselves Christians. But then to me, there's a disconnect. Because I think, in my silly little brain, if there really are that many millions and millions of true, committed Christ followers in this country, why has our country not turned around spiritually? If there were really that many true Christ followers, we would have impacted this nation long ago. But we haven't. And so it makes me wonder... We should not be surprised that the Bible says the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. The Israelites made a big mistake. They thought that because they were God's people, that he would overlook their sin. He would give them special privileges. But it's precisely because they were God's people that God said he was going to discipline them. Jump ahead quickly. Let's peek at this. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. God says to them, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. That word known there is a very intimate word. God says to these Israelites, You're the only ones out of all the people on the earth I've known in this kind of intimate relationship. He says to them, Therefore... I will punish you for all your iniquities. Don't miss the connection there. God is saying, it's because you're my people that I'm going to punish you. In these opening chapters of Amos, we we not only see the God who roars, but we see the love that disciplines. The love that disciplines. You know, Parents today seem deathly afraid to say no to their children. I've never seen anything like it. You see them screaming in the grocery store and laying on the floor, kicking and stomping and yelling, and the mom saying, okay, 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 if you just get up, I'll, I'll buy you the treats you want. Yeah, you, you folks my age are shaking your head right there. You know. If I disobeyed at school, I got a whipping from the teacher, a whipping from the principal, and then a whipping from my parents when I got home. And so I'm not that bright, but I'm smart enough to know I don't want to get that again. So it affected me. It caused me to rethink things. Now, the idea apparently is, well, we don't want to interfere with the child's creativity. We just want to let them be free to... Choose whatever they want, even their gender. 
Even now, I don't know if you keep up with this, but it's just, it's, it's sickening. It's actually beyond the realm of comprehension to me that classrooms are now putting litter boxes in the classroom because some children identify as cats. And I'm not making that up. Like, I, could Sodom and Gomorrah have been that much further into sin than we are? You see, love and discipline are not mutually exclusive. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. Love and discipline are like two hands working together. You must have one and you must have the other. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says this clearly. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Job 5.17, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. Nobody has made that their memory verse. But it's a good one. See, God's love is not a license for us to become spoiled children. The Israelites thought they could turn their back on God without consequences. But God loved them too much to sit back and let them ruin their lives. And it's clear by now that discipline is the only language they understand. We've seen that through our study through the Old Testament so far. They couldn't claim to be God's people and at the same time reject the very commands of God. Just as we can't claim to be a Christian nation by going to church on Sunday and imagine that God will ignore the wickedness being carried out Monday through Saturday. It's not going to happen. Do those who call themselves the church actually think that God will not judge them for watering down and even denying his word? Just because they're a church? Actually, it's going to be worse for them. Just as it was for Israel, because they had the truth. They knew better. We can't hide behind the label of church or Christian and think that that gives us immunity. God says, you have I known out of all the people on the earth. Therefore, therefore, because of that, I will punish you for all your iniquities. There's a responsibility that comes with being God's people. And no, we're not Israel. We're not God's people in that sense. But the New Testament tells us clearly, once we were not a people, but now we are a people. We've been grafted in because of Christ. We are now his people. The lion has roared, says Amos. Who will not fear? So quickly we see the God who roars, the love that disciplines, but notice finally the warning that gives opportunity. The warning that gives opportunity. And this is such a beautiful place to wind this down. It's hard to read these impending judgments of God without wincing. Because it seems like there's no escape. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. God says, Behold, I'm weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. Okay, this is when God's judgment falls. This is what God's telling him. You think you're going to get away from this? Just watch. The flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not 
strength and his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. And we'll see more next week. But what you need to know is these people had become wealthy. They were living in the lap of luxury. They had lives of ease. They were enjoying the finest of things. And they were looking to those things to sustain them and to satisfy them rather than looking to God. And God is saying, man, all your, all your fancy stuff and all your powerful skills, they're not going to be enough to let you escape my judgment when it comes. And God gives this fair warning to them. And you read this and you say, well, it sounds like the end for everybody involved. I mean, surely we're going to read in the next few verses that they're all wiped out. It's all over for them. But here's what's actually happening in these verses. God is giving these stern warnings in order to give them an opportunity to repent, even though he just said, for three transgressions and for four, I will not relent my punishment. But God, the heart of God is so beautiful, so caring that he's now, he's saying, I'm telling you all of this, and I don't have to tell you this. I could have just dropped this judgment on you from the sky and all of you would have been wiped out. The reason I'm telling you this ahead of time is so that you will repent and avoid all of this. In verses 3 through 6 of Amos 3, God gives them a series of kind of weird riddles. I won't take time to go through them all, but... He asks them questions, and they're going to answer no to every one of these. Can two walk together unless they're agreed? No. And there's much more to that verse. Verse 4, will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? No. So they're going through this, and they're saying, no, 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 we get it, we get it. And then he comes to verse 8, first part of verse 8. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? Well, we'll, we'll all fear. And he says, the Lord has spoken. And you read that and you go, oh man, this is the end. This is it for these people. But it's not because I didn't finish verse 8. Let me read the rest of it. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? And you go, well, what does that mean? Well, it ties right into what he said in verse 7, Amos 3, 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants the prophets. You must really listen to what's being said here because these statements show us the extraordinary goodness and patience of God. They're hard for us to kind of get our ear around what he's saying here. But God is saying, I haven't just struck you down without mercy. Every time before my judgment comes, I always send a prophet to you. I always give you fair warning to turn around. What a good, gracious God. God's warnings can be extremely chilling, but they're intensely merciful. The lion has roared, but it's not all over just yet because God's warnings are warnings that give opportunity. We'll pick up here next week, but as we bring this to a close today, 
we must be careful not to miss the obvious and convicting similarities between those people and us, between then and now. And more importantly, I think, to see how God's truth applies to us as it did to them. As I said, I'm sure the Israelites, you know, reading these, the history of these people, you kind of get to know them. I'm sure they must have felt a sense of security, maybe even smugness, as judgment was being pronounced on all the nations around them. And they never imagined that judgment would soon be pronounced on them too. I mean, after all, they thought, we're God's people. How easy it is today for the church to sit comfortably in our air-conditioned auditoriums and our soft seats and all of our niceties, presuming all the while that God's pleasure and favor are shining down on us while we point fingers of blame at everyone out there for the reasons the world is in such a mess. God says, you know what? I actually want to point my finger at you. It really is long past time for judgment to begin at the house of God. It's long past time. I wonder if we're willing to heed God's warnings and say, Lord, search my heart, search me, point out anything in me that's displeasing to you. These Israelites, man, they were, they were doing very well at this time in history. We'll see next week. They lived in beautiful homes. They wore the finest jewelry. They used the finest perfumes. They ate the best food. They drank bowls full of wine, it tells us. They had everything in abundance. But this easy life had turned their worship into a meaningless formality. It was just another thing on their schedule to do every week. They were still worshiping. They were worshiping a lot. We're going to see that next week. They were worshiping a lot. But then they would leave worship and go out into the world and live their sinful lives. They had God's word in their possession, but they didn't have God's word in their heart. Hello, church. How many Bibles do we own? And how deeply is God's word affecting our heart? These people had God's word, but God's word didn't have them. Is it conceivable that God would look on our nation and not roar? Our city, our church, and not roar? The real wonder to me is that God continues to warn and give opportunities. That's the real puzzle to me. But it won't always be that way, folks. It won't always be that way. At some point, and none of us knows when, at some point, the timer is going to go, ding. And instead of hearing God's tender calls in moments like this, through his word, in a thousand other ways, instead of hearing his tender calls to you, come back to me, come back to me, live your life for me, you know what you're going to hear? You're going to hear the lion roar. 
and it's going to be a terrifying sound because one day time will run out. My prayer today is that the lion will roar and that we will fear, that we will heed the warning he's giving us, and that we will repent where we need to repent. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. I want to see